Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. And we're back with the Global Development Primer podcast, and today's guest is Emma Swan. She's a fourth-year PhD candidate at the School of International Development and Global Studies at the University of Ottawa. She's recently returned from spending two years in the West Bank and in Gaza, where she was conducting her PhD field research. Her research, supported by the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation and the Social Science Humanities Research Council, doctoral fellowship program, and the International Development Research Research Center explores masculinities in the Palestinian resistance movement. And more specifically, Emma looks at the relationship between how Western Orientalist narratives of violent and nonviolent resistance have been constructed since the Oslo Accords and the so-called Middle East peace process. She's also interested in how these colonial narratives interact with and shape the identity of men involved in the Palestinian resistance movement. And today on GDP, we have with us Emma Swan, live in Vancouver. Emma, great to see you back. Hey, thank you so much for having me here. It, it's been like, what, two years since we ran into each other in Ottawa? and now I believe we were last uh, in a small little pub <laughs> underground the, the, in the winter. It, it was the Manx pub, wasn't it? Was. it? Yeah, oh, it really I was, yeah. I love that joint. It's a little odd on Sunday nights, but otherwise you're you're good to go there. That cover band, yes. That cover band, okay. So on to the, uh, on to the, on to the serious stuff here. Your research took you to Palestine. And you looked at uh, issues of violent, nonviolent resistance that's been shaped since the Oslo peace process. Can you can you bring our listeners up to speed us to what are the Oslo Accords and where in the world are we with the so-called Middle East peace process today? Yeah, uh, I mean that's an easy question to start off. <laughs> I know. Right? <laughs> All right, um, great question. I mean. The, the so-called peace process, you know, has seen various iterations uh, throughout time. Uh, I would say today, however, it's sort of at this all-time low. Um, many will remember this infamous handshake that took place on the lawn of the White House uh, 26 years ago, I believe it is today, in 93, between the chairman of the PLO at the time, Yasser Arafat, and then the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin after signing these, these uh, Oslo Accords. So I think this, this handshake really was monumental at the time, you know, after months of secret talks uh, taking, places, taking place, nobody really knew what was going on in, in Norway. It signaled for the first time to the world, you know, both sides really formally recognizing one another. So at that time, the Oslo Accords really were spreading this promise of peace around the world. Everybody was really hopeful. I, I know uh, from the interviews that I was conducting in Palestine, Palestinians as well were, were incredibly hopeful at that time. And it sort of signaled this this beginning or this promise of freedom and independence for them, and also this prom- promise of the recognition of, of their human rights. However, unfortunately, that enthusiasm didn't didn't really last for for that long. Um, depending on who you talk to, of course, there's a lot of different narratives going on here, and some blame the agreement itself, claiming that it was inherently sort of flawed from the beginning. Uh, because it kind of it failed to address really the crux of the conflict, which uh, sort of the issues of Jerusalem, uh, settlements, the, like sort of the question of Palestinian refugees and their right of return, as well as permanent borders, right. uh, and then also you know any sort of promise of a future Palestinian state. So, I mean, 
the other side of the coin, other people would argue, uh, we hear all the time this, that there's no partner for peace, quote unquote. Um, who that absent partner is, of course, depends on, on where you're standing. Um, but in any regard, sort of frustrations on the Palestinian side due to a lack of, of what they saw as progress um, eventually led to the second intifada in the mm -hmm. year 2000. So for many, this sort of was the first step of this undoing, I guess, of, of Oslo. Mm -hmm. um, I, so now, like I said, 26 years ago, uh, to, to, I mean, yeah, 26 years since Oslo, today we find ourselves in a place where you know, the Israeli military withdrawal from the West Bank has, has not happened. Um, there's checkpoints and roadblocks, riddles. Were there not even expansions of settlements in the West Bank? Massively, yeah, you know, exactly. More recently too, right? Yeah, up until today. Um, I mean, I think the incredible stat is one-tenth of the Israeli Jewish population now lives outside of internationally recognized uh, borders in these illegal settlements in the West Bank and, and in uh, East Jerusalem. And that's about 630, or I think the exact number is 628,000 people. So well over half a million people. And are. the Israeli military comes in to, to protect those settlers. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Um, also, I mean, we, we hear stories coming out of Gaza all the time about it's on the verge of being unlivable uh, due to this brutal land, sea, and, and air blockade. Uh, and then lastly, there's just this utter lack of trust between both sides. So. I think since the early 2000s, um, the peace process is really centered around this paradigm of a two-state solution. But given everything that I, I just mentioned, um, and also this like an absence, like this what you call goodwill on mm -hmm. either side, yeah. um, has led to the majority of people really feeling that this two-state solution is is dead and is rendered. And that was impossible. the basis of Oslo Peace Corps. There would be, there would be two states working together or alongside each other. That was the idea? Ish. Okay. Oslo actually didn't, didn't set forth this uh, any sort of um, roadmap that, that came later um, as to how exactly this two-state solution. But I, it was generally understood that that was what we were working towards. Yeah. And then there was various conferences and, and meetings afterwards that then sort of laid supposedly more of a solid foundation around this two-state solution idea. Um, I mean, I, I think... Further complicating and answering your question, uh, of course, is this elephant in every single room these days, and that's Trump. Um, well, but he moves the uh, the embassy to Jerusalem. Yeah. What was the impact of that? Yeah, you were you were there for that. Yeah. You, what went on? We we saw some clips in the media. There were protests. There has been a lot of discussion about how that created more tension. But what did that tension look like when you were there? Yeah, you know, it's actually kind of strange. I feel like I, of course was following the, the news really, really closely, and also I was living in Ramallah at the time in the West Bank, and there was actually this quite a strong disparity between what I was reading in the media and what I was seeing on the streets. And we were all pretty worried, to be honest. You know, right. Everyone was talking about these like, three days of rage and you know, murmurs of third intifada and all this kind of stuff. And um, although there was this uh, an utter sort of disappointment, I would say, uh, in the announcement, there was also this kind of, this air of, yeah, why are you surprised? Mm -hmm. from, from Palestinians themselves. Um, we didn't see this, the rise of the Third Intifada, and we didn't see these huge, violent protests that we thought we were going to. And for many of my Palestinian friends, they, what, they, what they tell me was just that, like, it basically showed to the world what they already knew, and that was that they didn't have a neutral 
sort of unbiased broker. You no, know? no. And so in some ways, it, it, um, yeah, it, it basically just bolstered a narrative that they had, they already were trying to, to share with the world and nobody was listening, and then it kind of made yep. it quite obvious. It was a show of cards in a sense, you know. Right, and again, this is, this is again, the, the reason why it's so contentious is because, uh, you know, Jerusalem is, is declared to be part of both. Mm-hmm. both exactly. Areas. So, so this back at this idea about lack of trust, I mean, uh, this, this seems to just be feeding into it. You've got a, you've got a character like Donald Trump in the White House uh, whose constant contradictions, perpetual lies, that's not someone who you'd want to be having your, your opposite, your opponent, confiding in for international security and governance in that way. Yeah, absolutely. So he, we know that he ran on this platform of offering this, uh, I think it's the perfect Trumpism, you know, this, the plan of the century or the, I, I feel like the, the deal of the century, you know, it's such a jump way of saying it, uh, which he claimed obviously would solve this conflict in the, in the Middle East. But so while the peace plan, his peace plan is yet to be released, so we can't really speak directly to, to what it is or what it will, what it will entail. Um, there has been a lot of leaks or murmurs around what it will what it will look like, and essentially, regardless of what it does look like, there has been essentially zero Palestinian input into this this peace plan. Right. Um, and then, like we said, after moving the embassy, you know, the, the states has sort of given up its right to claim status as a, as a neutral third party. So I guess all that is to say, <laughs> in general, the feelings in Palestine, as well as in, in much of the world, including many Israel in Israel as well is that when Kushner's peace plan finally is released, it's essentially going to be dead on arrival. Mm-hmm. There's, there's not a lot of hope from it either side that I've heard of personally, besides people that are you know, right. invested in, in certain ways in it. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, yeah, hope. So this doesn't really paint a very optimistic picture for you no. in terms of the Middle East peace process today. God, no, and, and it's something that we're just seeing as sort of broader trend. I mean, we've seen how that, you know, that John Bolton is a security advisor in, in the United States that there's this sort of chest pounding and drum banging about wanting to engage in conflict with places like mm-hmm. Iran and you know very very harsh policies coming out uh, towards Cuba and Venezuela. It's just like the the potential for dialogue within the current White House seems to be mm. gone, you know, yeah. in, in any single form. Uh, that obviously with with this attempt to try to create some sort of stability, peace in the area. Uh, with that sort of declining, with Israeli settlements coming in further and further into to Palestine, obviously people are going to say, we say no to this. We reject this. This is not in our benefit. And this is something we see in the neoliberal era everywhere, right? That when these very narrow, trust me, it'll be all right policies come out and they don't come to fruition, people resist. People, people push back. You're looking at violent and nonviolent resistance in Palestine. What do you see when you're mm, there? What is it looking like? Yeah. Well, I mean, this, the image of this kafia-clad teenager sort of wielding this stone-laden slingshot facing Ju- off against an Journalists Israeli. tend to, to flock to that, don't they? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes, this long pervaded our images of, of Pal- Palestinian resistance around around the world. But I mean, throughout history. Palestine and Palestinians, sorry, have, have utilized a really wide variety of tactics uh, to resist the multiple occupations that they've uh, they've experienced, from the Ottomans to the to the British after World War One, and then now with the Israeli settler colonial project. So, I guess 
given the sort of all-encompassing effects of the occupation, really resistance today in, in Palestine has come to encapsulate almost like any act uh, that disrupts the social, political, uh, or legal order imposed by, by Israel or by the occupying powers. So I guess you could say, like, in, in addition to simply remaining on one's land, which in, in Arabic they, they call sumud, or directly translated means steadfastness, um, which, given the systematic efforts to, to remove people from their land, uh, is, is now understood as sort of a very basic, one of the most basic uh, forms of resistance. Uh, resistance also has come to encompass, uh, encompass acts of civil disobedience, such as strikes, uh, demonstrations uh, impeding the demolition of homes, villages, or olive groves, um, as well as, of course, economic boycotts, di divesting and sanctions, uh, and then also, interestingly, symbolic sort of um, performances, I guess you could call, of resistance, such as learning and practicing the traditional dance of dubka. Uh, and then moving across the spectrum also to the other side where more sort of armed insurgencies and sort of random lone, lone wolf, they're calling them lone right. wolf stabbing attacks. So these, all of these different tactics are being used uh, to varying degrees to disrupt this, what they call, like what they would consider this colonial project. Um, and therefore from the Palestinians, they are all considered resistance. So, but then, but these are these are really a wide range of, of sort of peaceful, nonviolent resistance to block bulldozers to individuals being stabbed on the Israeli side and buses. I mean, there's got to be political divisions within that range. There, there. I can't imagine that everyone is going to agree with all of these tactics that are being used. Yeah, that that's definitely true. Um, and I think that's becoming more true today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, maybe we'll get into that uh, in a moment. But yeah, I, I think that, as you said, it's impossible really to, to, to discern exactly why and how people choose what tactics they choose. You know, I, I often ask people that in interviews. And one man explained it to me. It was, it was an interesting way. He said, if you put a whole bunch of dogs in the corner and you start poking them all with sticks, they're going to react in different ways. Some are going to like hide in the corner. Another one's going to try to slip through your legs. And another one's going to bite your hand. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not, you, know, you can't really, it's just, mm -hmm. there's something about the internal disposition sometimes of people, and then everything from yeah, just personalities, ideologies, religious justifications. There's so many different things that are wrapped into, uh, and then also individuals' experience with that uh, oppression, what it may look like. You know, refugees have a different experience than people living in Ramallah, for example. And so yeah, not everybody supports every tactic, but um, what I would say is that historically, I think resistance was understood much more of a solidarity. Everybody resisted with what they could, and. Yeah. There wasn't judgment, really, as much judgment, I would say, between who chooses what tactic and why. Um, but that conversation has definitely become a lot more charged uh, in what I'm calling this post-Oslo era. So the, uh, something just jumped in my head, and in that way, that the, the history of solidarity, the history of resistance, I mean, the history of resistance and solidarity goes back hundreds of years. But there was sort of this post-World War II um, Solidarity, freedom fighting uh, era that came out. So Cuba in the 50s, mm -hmm. and then you know throughout the Middle East, African countries in the 60s, where that sort of solidarity was combined with violence in in some form, right? That it had to um, that there was some sort of you know use of, of taking strategic plans to 
attack an enemy, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, they're thinking about Che Guevara and mm-hmm. the place of the AK-47 and, and some of these narratives. Uh, the other thing with it is that, you know, in the 1970s even, there were, there were hijackings of aircraft that were done. And when an aircraft was hijacked in the 60s and in the 70s, sometimes people were like, bravo, you know, well, like Western media, French media would, uh, would actually celebrate the action. I mean, you know, thinking about this, nowadays there's no way that that sort of a, an action of resistance, as it were, would be celebrated. Um, and there's, there's certainly reasons for that. I'm just, what I guess I'm getting at is whether or not media today has taken away or transformed a resisting group's ability to control their own narrative. Yes, I would say absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, my research looks a lot around sort of Western and Orientalist narratives uh, of just in general, but then for me particularly around resistance. And I think that that speaks exactly to what you, you just mentioned here. Um, I, I think, I, I guess. So, so when you say uh, Western Orientalist narrative, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I'll, I wanted to d- define that. And then also, I actually just wanted to add something to the question that your previous question, and I, I wanted to mention that. I think that when we're talking about violent and nonviolent resistance, I, I use the, that language very uh, consciously, I guess, mm-hmm. and I didn't, I often feel like it's important to talk about why. Yeah, um, yeah I think so. So it's, I think it's interesting and really important to explore the use of language and labels um, when we talk about resistance, but obviously just in general, because we know that language is obviously an ideological tool. Uh, which belongs to and shapes entire systems of, of beliefs and values, but then also kind of functions to to reinforce or justify certain attitudes, views, or sociopolitical realities, I guess you could say. So I think when we're using this word of violent or nonviolent resistance versus, for example, armed or unarmed resistance, which is what it's actually called in Palestine and in Arabic, um, I think we're conforming to Western Orientalist narratives. Okay. Um, so I think in answering your question, what are Western and Orientalist narratives, mm-hmm. we need to dive a little bit into to the theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously Edward Said is the name, the first name that, that comes to mind and is one of the most important theorists, I think, when we're discussing how representation and discourse and power all kind of interact, uh, particularly in Palestine, but also in the Middle East and the world. And his, his infamous book, Orientalism, was really born out of his frustrations as a Palestinian around how representations of, of Palestine were most often shaped by others, like by non-Palestinians. And that was in the 70s, 80s when that yeah, came out. Yeah, 78, yeah, exactly. Um, so I think his, his conception of Orientalism and his theorizing around how Palestinians have been, as he calls it, denied the right to narrate, um, really provides us with this account of how pervasive and continuing sort of these power relations of representation are in the West, but also in its allies, including Israel. Um, and that's where this, where I'm using this word Orientalist narrative. So sort of these narratives that are constructed about Palestinians and that haven't been defined by Palestinians themselves. And so I think that one, I mean, this happens in many, many different ways, but I think one way that Palestinians have been, as he says, denied the right to narrate is through this space and the language and this framing of resistance. And 
like I said before, while this occurs on many different levels and through obviously many different processes, um, I think one way that it happens is through this binary framing of violent and nonviolent resistance. Right. right. Um, I mean, in moral philosophy, like Judith Butler likes to talk about this, begins with this question of whether violence is ever justified. Yeah. But, you know, what this question really fails to do is to interrogate what counts as violence mm -hmm. and then what counts as a justification. And I think, you know, really questioning what violence is and how it's framed and justified, as well as asking questions of what violence is not, um, are really important tools for us if, like, in order to situate any sort of analysis outside of these dominant narratives and, and have some sort of critical reflection. So. I think in the case of Palestinian um, resistance, violent or nonviolent, um, we have to remember that any sort of resistance is made possible first, uh, and basically is made possible and remains only possible through this prism of the legitimization of the Israeli settler colonial project and all of the subsequent forms of violence that come along with it. So I think, and I think that's important to, to remember because when more attention is being put on the forms or the tactics of resistance, rather than why people are resisting in the first place, our gaze is sort of on the actions of the colonized, rather than on the process of colonization itself. Yeah. So I think then by focusing on these tactics of resistance, particularly when we, we have a lot of judgments attached to them, like this language of violence versus nonviolence, um, I think it's, it's problematic because it fails to address these drivers, like I said, the drivers of resistance in the first place, which is colonialism and the plethora of legitimized or quote-unquote legal violence that mm -hmm. comes along with that. So, yeah, I guess... So. And there's also, there's also a tremendous blurring in, in Western media today that would sort of just compress any form of resistance and violence or any sort of resistance, I should say, just as inherently violent, inherently evil, mm -hmm. right? There seems to be very quick sound bites within uh, certain private media, the United States, some media outlets in Canada, that would quickly associate uh, actions by ISIS to, you know, uh, peaceful resistance in, in, in Palestine. Just saying that if it's not anything that's sort of challenging it, uh, challenging uh, the West mm -hmm. is in itself inherently wrong, mm -hmm. and meanwhile we see that on the ground, uh, you know, the, the sort of violence that came out of, of ISIS and the, the, the complexity of these conflicts, um, quite a, quite a bit of it. It's clearly that's abominable. Like what's what's, mm -hmm. what, what's being seen here, uh, you know, and the, the the threats to people's personal security and. Um, the threat of, of, of an attack on an individual, you know, that's it'd be hard to say, oh yeah, no, this should happen. This, it, it, it's quite reprehensible. Mm -hmm. But in doing so, of those moments when when, we, when you see when you see violent activity as protest, it overlooks the nonviolent as form of resistance and as form of disruption as well. And sometimes with, with activists, I know I've, having studied this and taught classes on activism and social justice, there's usually two big goals with it. One is to to try to communicate why your cause matters to people who don't care, mm -hmm. right? And then two is to try to make a change somehow, somewhere, somewhen. And in countries like Canada, we've got it in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms that we can protest peacefully. 
as a tool to make change. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't work. And it seems like in the case of Israel-Palestine, the focus is, you know, from this resistance, is to stop this encroachment of the Israeli state on territory. Mm-hmm. And as that encroachment continues, that in itself is a violent act, mm-hmm. right? And when you've got any sort of violence that takes place, you're going to have a reaction some way or other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of what you're, you're finding, or...? Yeah, yeah, that's sort of... I mean, it's hard because, like you said, pulling in this example of ISIS. Um, it's crazy, you know, and, and to, to do it. But yet I, I've seen, I can see the media broadcast. Of would course. would just yeah. jump, you know, the, the, the news hit that comes on at 6.03 is about Palestine. The one that comes on at 6.05 is on ISIS, and it just gets muddled. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think 9-11, I mean, Palestinians will tell you time and again, 9-11 was terrible for the world, but it was also very, very terrible they, for they them. Took the blunt, yeah, brunt of it, they took yeah. feel They felt like yeah. that contributed, I mean, obviously greatly to uh, to this sort of global narrative that that equated yep. terrorism with Islam and Islam with terrorism. And so, there it is. So, there it is. There, there's that muckiness that, yeah. that overlooks what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And I think also, I mean, it's... Uh, it, it's a, it's a difficult conversation because, of course, the acts, how this manifests in many ways is, like you said, reprehensible and is absolutely nothing that I would ever stand to support no, at no, all. No, you no. Know? Um, but we also need to be able to say that while simultaneously recognizing the context in which this stuff takes place and what leads to, the, what leads to yeah, it. Yeah, you know? that is the issue. Why mm-hmm. is this happening? Why is this happening in this place where over here it's not? Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that's what you're getting to. And you're seeing as part of that that there's a role about masculinities. Yeah, in yeah. This, in resistance. Yeah, definitely. So I guess the, the, the displacement and dispossession ethnic cleansing, depending on who you talk to, resulting from the creation of the state of Israel in, in 48, and then the subsequent occupation of the remaining of, uh, the remainder of historic Palestine in 67, really has touched the lives of every single Palestinian. And it has shaped their collective consciousness, I guess you could say, mm. and really continues to play a leading role in how individuals construct their identity. So masculinity, like you know, like gender, gender in general, we know is not natural, it's not a given, you know, it's it's constructed through a social process that dictates roles, responsibilities, expectations, etc. And while these sort of change over time and, and they evolve, often sort of core aspects of this patriarchal order uh, remain fixed in place. And despite changes in the social structures and the economic opportunities, as well as various con- uh, security considerations, and the rights and freedoms of, of Palestinians, still narratives around masculinity remain really strongly tied to notions of being a provider and a protector. Right. Like much like every you know yep. any part of the world, but the ongoing occupation and the crippling economic situation and everything that that follows really makes these narratives of masculinity difficult for men, if not impossible, to to achieve or to fulfill. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One way in which men sort of confront this is through engaging in resistance. There it is. Um, So although, I mean, it's really important to say that resistance has been throughout history practiced both by men and women, and women play an incredibly important role in it. There's a lot of literature around that. at the same time, resistance has come to play a particularly prominent role in the construction of Palestinian masculinity. And historically, men have derived a lot of 
power and uh, prestige, I guess you could call it, call it, from their resistance activities or from their engagement. So what, the connection here between what we were talking about earlier and, and masculinities is I think that the use of these Orientalist or Western mm-hmm. narratives um, to construct uh, Palestinian resistance has dramatically altered this space uh, that male Palestinians find themselves in. And um, the increased sort of Western involvement through NGOs, uh, donors, all all sorts of conferences and workshops and everything that's going on in the West Bank, uh, both directly and indirectly, has gradually sort of shifted the resistance discourse and practice towards adopting the framing of the colonizer. Right. So, I mean, in much of the media, as you mentioned earlier, the media, and also in policy and in research, Palestinian men involved in resistance are often framed through these narratives of a violent Arab, a violent Arab man in need of civilizing, and he needs to be civilized through the adoption of nonviolence. Even though right. throughout history, mm-hmm. the most common form of, resi- of resistance in Palestine has always been nonviolence. Like the first intifada, you know, they, they've always been the most popular and common uh, yeah. form of resistance, but yet it's being talked about as if it's something new and needs to be adopted by these people in order to, for them to be taken seriously or something. Right. So, I mean, this kind of like dovetails with in the years following the Oslo Accords, as we spoke about earlier, Palestine saw this huge jump uh, in international aid and donor money flowing in through this newly formed Palestinian Authority. And all of it was unapologetically tied to conditions laid out by, by donors as well as Israel. And one of these conditions was that the PA denounced all forms of armed resistance. So. I think these the shifting sort of sands of support for, for for various forms of resistance has precipitated this crisis of sorts in masculinity, um, and particularly masculinity related to those men that are involved in resistance. Because, like also I mentioned previously, resistance in all of its forms used to sort of be seen as an avenue for men living under occupation to attain to attain dignity, status, and respect in their communities. Mm-hmm. So. Now, if men are involved in any form of resistance that falls outside of this really strict interpretation, or AKA like Western interpretation of what they consider nonviolence, they increasingly fresh, uh, face pressure from the popular resistance committees, who receive funding from the outside, are shunned by local and international NGOs, ostracized by the PA, but then also imprisoned by Palestinian police as well. And I mean, all of that obviously is happening in addition to the threats from the IDF. Um, so basically, yeah, the dri- while the drivers of resistance remain the same, you know, the occupation is, is still there. I mean, the situation in Palestine is gradually getting worse. The space and opportunities for men to to resist these processes is, nar- is it's narrowing is down. Narrowing. Yeah. This is this is fascinating, and you know, this is something that I hope uh, you know the work that you're doing can can inform these processes and and try to get people both who are working on peace building and policy work in this state to to pay better attention to but also the people who are learning about it mm-hmm. for the first time that that they see that there's this it isn't just the the two sides in black and white They're like the complexities are are deep uh, you know there's certainly people in Israel who who disagree with with what's going on in the in the West Bank as Absolutely. well, right? I mean, I've I've ran into those folks in Jerusalem uh, myself, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out there. And I guess 
all this comes down to, my last question for you is that there is so much misunderstanding, so much political confusion, and as we sort of stepped into here, uh, the media isn't helping much <laughs> in terms of creating a quality education around this topic. Where should people begin to learn more about this? If you, if we, if you have someone who's listening right now and you say, you want to learn more about this, where do you go next? Yeah, that's, I completely agree, and I think it's a fantastic question. I know for myself, when I first started getting in, involved in this sort of region, one of the, the, the main reasons why I went to Palestine the first time, I guess it was a decade ago, I was an undergraduate student, and it was because of that very thing. I kept feeling like everywhere I turned, I was reading all this different information, and it seemed like it was all very really contradictory. I couldn't, I, I just, yeah, I felt like there was so much information out there, so many different competing narratives, and coming from a small town on Vancouver Island with no familial connection to the region, I mean, it was it was confusing. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was difficult to parse through. So, yeah, I think, I mean, there are a number of incredibly articulate uh, journalists and analysts and, and scholars all writing uh, about this region. Uh, but I do say, I think that it, it's important to understand both narratives, you know, um, and both sides of the conflict in order to really be able to come to a place yourself that you're able to make uh, yeah. an informed opinion. And, or if not opinion, I mean, I think, I feel like the more time I spend there, the more... You know, it's never going to be clear. It's yeah. confusing, but I, I do think that nevertheless, it's important to, yeah, to really understand these historical narratives and then how they manifest today. So, I guess I would say, in there's two, like in, in terms of reporting and, and news, I would say that um, well, uh, Monitor is a good place to start, mm-hmm. um, and their respective Israeli and Palestinian uh, pages are also really good for a bit of exposure to to multiple narratives. Um, the International Crisis Group, I think, is is one of the absolute best. Um, Offer Zalsberg is really fantastic. He writes for them. He's mm-hmm. he's incredible. And also, the, I think the analysis offered by Nathan Thrall is really uh, is invaluable as well. So that's sort of more news media yeah. kind of reporting. And then moving into the literature, of course, Edward Said, I think, is a must read. Yep. Um, in particular, Orientalism. Uh, I think it's just really important for us as, as students and also just as engaged citizens uh, of the world to to really try to understand and be, or begin to understand, I should say, the relationship between power and representation, and not only in Palestine but ar- around the world. Um, and then also, I guess, the work of Hassan Kanafani is a he's a fascinating Palestinian writer and political activist, socialist. Um, and though he met a really untimely death, I think he was 36 when he was assassinated by Mossad, still, nevertheless, his writing offers really interesting insight into Palestinian experiences of imperialism, colonialism, and resistance. Yep. Uh, and then the poetry of Mahmoud Darwish is beautiful for a human sort of human account. <laughs> and it is summer, and it is a good time to park yourself in a garden and read some poems. Absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, the other thing I could just sort of comment on that is maybe... Uh, a lead by example with yourself. I mean, this conversation we've been having for the last half hour, uh, no conclusions were drawn as to what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And that is very important when there is so much misunderstanding is to keep asking questions mm-hmm. and to keep seeing different sides and to maybe go back to the same issue a dozen times from different perspectives rather than say, okay, today I'm going to draw a conclusion on what needs to happen. And for anyone getting into international development or into issues in the Middle East, uh, I would hope that's one of the best engagement methods 
that uh, students and scholars both can, can take going forward. Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like the second we stop asking questions, we stop learning. And yeah, there is, like you said, there's no there's no easy answers to any of this. And yeah. stay curious and, I, and keep asking. I haven't heard Donald Trump ask a question in a long time, <laughs> but he, uh, he says a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to be like him. <laughs> no, I hope not. So, Emma Swan, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. We're, we're here on UBC campus in Vancouver talking about your research about Orientalism, masculinities, resistance in Palestine. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much.